Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 59 of Hello, Fellow Kids. This is the podcast where we read young adult slash middle grade slash teen literature, and then we have an in-depth discussion about it. We usually call it the Book Report Podcast, but I think if you tried to turn this in word for word, you'd get an F, so maybe be careful with that. This month we read The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill, which is the second time that we have visited Kelly Barnhill. This is unrelated to The Girl Who Drank the Moon, um, but it does share some thematic similarities. Sure thing. Yeah, it's like a kind of fairy tale, dreamy sort of narration with like almost an overabundance of themes, but like... (laughs) Pick pick what you want from it and move along. It's like a buffet of themes. You can load up the whole plate with kindness, or you can load up the whole plate with Trump and Trumpism. Just anything that resonates with you, just put it on the plate. It all costs the same amount anyway at the end, so why not? Um, this book, yeah, I, you notice how I said Trumpisms. Um, do you think he's a swell guy? And, his presidency was the best thing ever. Don't listen to this episode. Don't read this book. Maybe don't even listen to any episodes of this podcast. Because I, I um, was going to say, uh, not- honestly, if you're listening to this, you don't think that that's the case. I'm pretty sure we've weeded those people out. I don't know. There's some things where they're like, it's like, how are you still like for other things that are very like lefty leaning? Like the people who were all mad about... um twilight zone the uh jordan peele taking it over how it got like too woke and i was like what do you mean rod serling and everybody they like he did as much as he could get away with right there are things that he couldn't and for that time period they're like you can't put that on tv and he's just like fine i guess so if you you can sit there and watch the monsters are loose on maple street and tell me that that didn't have a political message then you have no meteor literacy and you need to go like sit down for a while. I think my favorite one is still people complaining about Rage Against the Machine being political. Yes. Like, how did you not notice? What machine did you think he meant? The coffee maker? <laughs> he wouldn't mean that. I hate my garbage disposal. They just liked yelling F you, I won't do what you tell me to their moms. That's, that's as much thought <laughs> as they gave it. That's so true. <laughs> But yeah, this this book is um full of things like that. It took a while for me to pick up. I don't know if like if you were like page one going, oh, but it, it took me a little bit until I was like, oh, OK. So, no, then, I didn't notice it right away. I started picking up and be like, right. oh, that's a parallel. And then there were a few where I'm like, that's not a parallel. That's literal. <laughs> well, I think it was someone having the town make our town great again where I went, oh. And the fact that they're explicitly red signs with white letters i didn't catch that yeah but that kind of is like the sign that is like that will draw the attention and i think they've had like had like like ogress with like a red line through it and Mm -hmm. yes so uh overall we did like it maybe not quite as high a tier as uh the girl who drank the moon but we did still enjoy the book overall um so this will be a broadly positive episode yeah So uh, let's get into it. The first part of my synopsis is fairly substantial because there's a lot of like, there are a lot of things that need to get introduced and set in place so that I don't have to 
stop periodically to do origin stories for a bunch of little elements. So let's get into this. All right. Our story takes place in the small town of Stone in the Glen, which is naturally named for a pond at the top of a mountain. The town was once a very kind place filled with folks who were nice, gave generously, and looked out for their neighbors. However, things started going south when the library, once the most popular building in town, burned down. Some say it was a dragon, others say it was an accident, but one thing is for sure, it was a dragon. After that... After that, several other buildings burned down, including the school. And then after that, the trees around town began to die off, reducing crops and making things even harder on the townspeople. With the trees gone, there was nothing to soak up the rains, resulting in flooding and eventually a sinkhole. All this is to say that the town took a turn for the worse, and as a result, the townspeople began to spend more time apart, focused on themselves and keeping what they already had. And so it was that the kind and open town grew distrustful and cold. Sometime after the library burned, an ogress began to live in an abandoned farm just outside the town. Many of the villagers were distrustful of her, despite her being kind, intelligent, and a soft soul. She has lived in several places in the past, including an abandoned castle whose laboratory was filled with inventions and diagrams, which taught the ogress much about science and engineering, uh, as well as a village of other ogres high in the mountains that was destroyed by a dragon. Once she arrived at the farm, she watched the village from afar, And while Stone in the Glen's food sources dwindled, her farm expanded as she took care of her land and the wildlife around it. She is in many ways the hero of the story. Meanwhile in town, the only person that seems to be having any good luck is the mayor, a ravishing blonde man with a million-dollar smile, touting himself as a dragon slayer and periodically disappearing into the woods to vanquish foul beasts. He captured the hearts of the townspeople years ago and has remained handsome and loved despite everyone else growing hungry, angry, and distrustful. One might almost think he wanted things to be that way. There's also a stone, the stone that the town is named for. I lied about the pond. It sits in the town center and has strange markings on it that nobody noticed until after the library burned down. When the mayor saw it, he reached out to touch it and recoiled in fear and alarm, then ordered the stone covered. And so it was. Until the weather wore away the coverings and the stone was once again exposed, its markings seeming to tell the very story of the town are available to see once more. And lastly, we should meet the orphans. In this new era of the town's life, when folks are unwilling or unable to take in new mouths to feed, the orphanage has slowly filled with 15 children who have never known any other home. From oldest to youngest, their names are, and I'm only going to list them once, Anthea, Bartleby, Cass, Deirdre, Elijah, Fortunate, Gratitude, Hiram, Iggy, Justina, Kyle, Lily, Maud, Nanette, and Orpheus. Anthea is the oldest at 13 and the leader of the group. Bartleby is philosophical and often debates Anthea on principle. Cass is quiet and speaks instead with actions. Elijah tells fanciful stories that bear a striking resemblance to this book. Fortunate and Gratitude are twins who look nothing alike and are not biologically related at all. And most of the other kids are too young to matter. They are all looked after by Matron and her husband Myron, who is covered in burn scars he obtained while trying to rescue books from the library during the Inferno. And I think that's all we need to get started. One day, the kids are debating how the town got to be so different from the lovely place they heard it once was. What started it on this path? The fire? The neighbors turning inward? The trees dying off? Certainly not the ogress, who many of the villagers blame despite the timeline not matching up, and also her not interacting with the town at all from what anyone could tell. Anthea concludes that the fire at the library was what caused all this trouble, 
And since that's how I wrote it in the summary, I'm inclined to agree. Anthea and Elijah go with Myron to the butcher shop, where they find the butcher in a heated argument, well, heated on his side, with Jonathan, an old friend. They seem to have made a deal that the butcher is now backing out on, blaming Jonathan for being disloyal. When he finally breaks away to talk to Myron, he accuses Myron of teaching the orphans to become thieves who won't pay their bills, a reference to Myron being on a line of credit instead of paying cash. He then drops the bombshell that, per the orphanage's charter, children are only allowed to stay until they turn 14, which, for Anthea, is just a few months away. This horrifies Anthea, and begins to consume her thoughts as they return to the orphanage, unable to purchase any food. The ogress, meanwhile, has been watching the village for some time and noticing that the villagers are in need of food and kindness. Despite the initial displeasure of the crows that live with her, she begins taking baskets of food into town at night and delivering them to the houses. She is growing far more food than she can eat, so of course she wants to share it. She has learned in her many years that the more you give, the more you have. As such, she has been supplementing the orphanage's declining food stock for some time, but it still isn't enough. She gifts food to many of the others as well, even the mayor. Nobody ever speaks of these gifts, however, for fear that someone might try to take what is theirs. So the ogress is just such a precious cinnamon roll. Right? Like, <laughs> she's, she's too good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, the butcher is the opposite of that. He's like an a-hole, like, consistently through this entire narrative. But I thought he was like the most believable villain of, mm. because, you know, you're not going to encounter, like, dragons all the time, you know? Or not, at least of all sociopathic dragons, but um, someone like this guy who's, like, looking out for himself and thinks that people buying on credit is stealing. And there's people who are like that. So I was just like, oh, this guy. Like, every time he showed up, I was just like, I hate this guy. <laughs> and he shows up a lot. This guy? This guy right here? That hobo ain't my brother. <laughs> <laughs> At what page did you know for sure that the mayor was the dragon? Because for me, it's page 11. Um, It was pretty soon. It was pr pretty soon. Um, I figured at first that he was in cahoots with the dragon, where he's like, hey, if you burn down my st this stuff, mm. they're going to be desperate for a leader, and that's going to be me, and I'll just say I killed you, but then I'll just keep you as reinforcements, huh? huh? That's what I thought we were going with this, but I was like, oh, okay, your idea is better. Okay. <laughs> this is why you're the author, and I'm the unpublished oh. dork just sitting at home. In my jammies. I think that could have been interesting, though, because then, like, then the mayor would still have had something to fear, because the mayor would need to keep the dragon satisfied as well. You know, so he would have, like, you'd have, like, enemies, like, both below and above him sort of thing, and they could have, there could have been an interesting angle with that as well. And showing that, like, everybody is, like, like, you're never at the top of the food chain, there's always somebody that has power over you. I also thought that, like, the cats, the angry cats that always hang around his house, I thought yeah. they were also all dragons in disguise, like, waiting for him to just slip up so they mm -hmm. can get him. Because mm -hmm. they're like, you're abusing this power we have. We kicked you out of our group, but mm -hmm. we were watching you, D-bag. And um, it, 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 it that turned out to not be the case either. So uh, I don't know if that's better or worse than what I thought up. But At first, I thought the narrator was going to be one of the crows, because a crow would have been able to, like, observe what had been going on outside the library, but not have been able to interact with anything. 
That was my first guess for who the narrator was. I thought it was one of the trees. Yeah. Well, first I thought the stone, but then like the stone was speaking of, about the stone in like third person. So I was like, maybe it's not the stone. Maybe it's a tree. It's going to be something weird because <laughs> this is Kelly Barnhill and she's and, very poetic. Yeah. As soon as there was the line that said, uh, no one could say, no one but the stone, and stones don't talk usually, I was like, ah, it's the stone, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, don't lie to me. But, um, I, I want an ogress to leave me treats. Yes. I don't say, I don't say hi to my neighbors. I'm a bad person. I should get my treats delivered to me. Where's my pie? Oh my god, he was so mad when the pie couldn't be delivered. Yeah, so the specifically the mayor's food, like she gives like a variety of foods to everybody, but she specifically leaves a pie for the mayor every day. And eventually, spoiler alert, um, she does not leave a pie for the mayor, and he is more irate about that than like anything anyone could ever do to him. <laughs> for real. I was like, You're so mad about this. <laughs> anything else before I keep going? Oh, we I mean we, we have we have orphans. Yeah. There were so many orphans. There's so many orphans. I just kept picturing Anthea as um God, I don't even remember that girl's name. Whoever the actress was who played uh Violet Baudelaire in the series of unfortunate events film. Uh like her Emily Browning? That sounds right. Yeah. I was like I knew it was Emily something. But yeah, I just pictured her as her like the entire time because I was like, okay, got two braids and she likes inventing things. She's Violet Baudelaire. (laughs) (laughs) And then the kid who's obsessed with philosophy, I would also constantly be telling to shut up because I don't I don't want to hear it. (laughs) He's every philosophy major I've ever heard. He's just like, I was like, I just don't want to debates aren't fun for me. Like, I don't want to hear about it. Shut up. And um, it, is I it thought it was funny. There's no line for you between debate and argument, and you don't want to have an argument. Well, because usually it's just like, okay, well, here's the thing I think, and da da da. And they're like, well, why do you think that? Let's dig 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 deep into that. I'm like, I gave as much as I'm willing to give you right now, <laughs> and they don't accept that, and or they have to turn everything into an argument. And you're, when you're just like, I just wanted to eat my snack in my in the break room <laughs> of my workplace and then leave. I didn't know I'd have to be interrogated and defend myself on how I view the world. I view you as a dickhead, okay? Yeah, I think the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is like not knowing that there's like the people aren't always ready to do that because I think there are some people that could can enjoy a debate from time to time, but like it's you don't just like assume that people are always ready to do that about anything because that's so annoying. Who's ready to defend everything that they know or feel like on the fly? Like, I guess right. these people are because they like think about it all the time and like have it at the ready. Whereas the rest of us, like, you know, we get flustered and then like maybe phrase something probably indelicately and then they leap on that. It's just, I, I hate right. that. It just feels like this very it just feels like a trap. So when he start when the kid was starting up, I was just like, you need to shut your face like immediately, and which right. is kind of what Anthea does. But she, um, there's a lot in this about like people not listening to each other, like mm-hmm. even like really good people. Everybody seems to be guilty of it, even the ones who are most upset that it's happening. Right? Yeah. Like the kid, like 
none of this would have progressed any further than it needed to if they just spent five seconds listening to Elijah. Like for real, he told you, he was telling you everything you needed to know because <laughs> the tree, the trees that had been used to build their house told him and he just sit there and listen to it like, okay, well, here's the history of everything that we came from. And they're all like, shut up, Elijah. So it seemed weird that his name was Elijah and not Cass slash Cassandra because Cassandra was the person in Greek mythology who was given the gift of like, you know, uh, predicting or whatever. But her problem with that, though, is that she'd be 100 percent accurate, but no one would believe her or listen to her. So Ooh, I was just like, yeah. oh, OK. Kind of messed up that naming convention. <laughs> Probably should have made Cass be that person and Elijah be the other one. But all right. yeah, I kind of tilted my head at that. I was just like, I don't okay. <laughs> I don't remember what Elijah. Like I don't remember what the story of Elijah is. Neither do I. I'm I'm not very good at Bible stories. So maybe it actually was like good, good, a good um choice. Um, what else about these kids? Um. I mean, at least half of them are primarily there just to emphasize how dire their, like, resource situation is. Yeah. Like, pretty pretty yeah. much anyone younger than uh, the twins is just, like, just a mouth to feed, and that is just a, a growing problem for them. Right. Like, we're already at, oh, what happens if we get through the whole alphabet and have to start over? You have to start doing, like, double, like, Angela Anaconda. Oh, I was thinking, like, this is Aaron. A.A. Ron. <laughs> oh, and there's a lot of, like, the ma um, Myron in particular, and the matron just being all like, oh, it's fine. This will be fine. We're fine. And, and like, and, like, oh, the more the more someone says things are fine, they're not fine. And, and the kids know it. So it's like mm -hmm. when they were leaving, like, the butchers, and he's all like, oh, no, we're going to be totally fine. We don't even need to worry about this. And I was like, they're, they're going to need meat. Like, you don't have enough... Um, like I, I know someone's sitting there going, you don't need meat, you handed it, but they don't have access to those other options. So they would need that meat for what that, like yeah. for the iron and the vitamins and shit. Cause yeah. they're not getting a whole lot of anything else. And yeah. cause they can't just rely on like the box of veggies that would show up like once in a while. I don't think there was any like real consistency with her gifts. She wasn't like, okay, here we go. I think it usually didn't go any longer than like oh oh between like what three to five days to a week or whatever is usually. Yeah, it, I think it was. I I think they got deliveries multiple times a week, so you know it wasn't. It, yeah, it wasn't every day, but you can't just rely on that, especially if because she her view was just like food makes people happy and not so much specific nutritional needs, and so like. You know, they're not getting, they don't have many protein options, especially. Um, right. I didn't see anything about peanuts in there. Like, yeah. yeah so, um, so them just being like, oh no, we're, we're good. We're good. It's going to be, it's going to be fine. The kids are old enough to be sitting there thinking, it's not fine though. And, uh, I had experience with that as a kid myself, except my mom didn't say like, it'll, it's fine. It's fine. Um, she was more, I know, I think they're not, the matron and Myron are not, bad people of course they're not but they're the kind of people who are so nice and need to believe that the world is good that they don't want to look at it for how it is and just think that they can just positive feelings themselves into a better situation 
And that's not how I was brought up. It was always more like, okay, we're going to acknowledge this elephant in the room. This is what we're like, this is what we're going to do to try and get through it. And it's going to be rough for a while, but we're going to, we're going to make it through it. And then that conversation never happened here. So I was kind of always frustrated, feeling frustrated with how no one was being like truly honest. Sure. Yeah. I don't really have anything more to add. All right. Let's get this going then. Okay. At the orphanage, Anthea remains upset about the news that she may have to leave soon. She has a series of outbursts with the old, with the other kids and decides to go spend some time alone in the shed, where she has her own workbench to build and repair things for the orphanage. She busies herself with odd jobs, hoping to make some kind of difference. She also takes a peek at her keepsake box, which contains several items that were left along with her at the door of the orphanage when she arrived. The next morning, Bartleby and Myron awake and check for the latest gift of vegetables, but it isn't there. They gather what they can from the orphanage's garden, and while they do, they discuss the philosophy of kindness. Does the intent behind the kindness matter, or only the result? That is, if something is done for not entirely selfless reasons, can it still have merit? Myron figures yes, something good is good regardless of the intent, but Bartleby still wants a more concrete answer. Specifically, he would like to know where the vegetables come from. The ogress's farm continues to expand. She encounters a family of sheep in the forest and takes them in. At first, the crows aren't sold on the idea, but it turns out to be a very suitable arrangement, as the sheep keep the grass trimmed to make it easier for the crows to find bugs, and their milk can be turned into cheese, which is the greatest thing on earth. They are also joined by a dog, who is blind but can still navigate very well, and quickly becomes a favorite on the farm. One night, the crows find the dog frozen in place, freaked out by a thing in the woods. It looks almost like a person, but empty, draped and sagging, its blonde hair blowing in the wind. Whatever it is unnerves the creatures immensely, and they rush back to the safety of the ogress. Now might be a good time to clarify something about dragons. Long ago, a dragon killed an antelope, and while preparing his meal, wondered what life as the antelope was like. This curiosity fueled magic that allowed the dragon to wear the skin of the antelope and live among its kind for a full year. When it finally changed back into a dragon, it had gained such empathy for the antelope that it became a vegetarian. It brought the skin to other dragons all around the world, teaching them the ways of the skin and learning how other creatures live and feel. This was largely a positive experience for the dragons, who gained some valuable perspective. However, even knowledge can be used for evil if the wrong person knows it. And it seems like antelope aren't the only creatures whose skin can be worn. So them wearing the skins, the crows don't know, but us, the readers, are like, okay, the mayor's the dragon. Mm-hmm. Especially finding the skin where it made me think like, oh, where's that guy then? Did did he kill that guy in order to have that skin? And and so I sat there wondering about that and that was never really elaborated on. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, there would have had to have been an OG mayor body. I wonder if that's why. Because like, maybe there was like an OG mayor who's like, yeah, I've killed dragons. I can do this. This dragon killed him. And then was just like, oh, Sweet. I'm going to be a dude for a while, and I get to use these cool-ass gold buckles I got. <laughs> Almost as much as he loves pie does he love those gold buckles. Yep. <laughs> okay, yeah, the the question of, like, how kind is this kindness? We don't know where this is coming from. And Myron just being all like, look, we've got nothing. 
we're going to be happy with what we have here. But I think like as much as I, I just bitched about how much I hate philosophy and this, and this kid's philosophical bullcrap. No, it's probably a good idea to know where it's coming from, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're going to be grateful for what we have and it is kind that they're giving it is, you know, I think the kids just like looking for more nuance in life and everyone's just like, I don't want nuance. Leave me alone. But sometimes you do need that because like not everything can just be like black and white. Yeah. I'm curious if the dragons wearing skins story, if there's an origin for that from folklore, uh, whether it's specific to like actual dragons or like European folklore, if it's from somewhere else. Um, but uh, I liked it. I liked that bit. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I thought that was more like just kind of being um, kind of taking that, you know, like, oh, you know, to really understand a person, you need to walk a mile walk in, their, a mile shoes. in their shoes. And like, you're literally doing that in you this need to case. Walk a, and it, walk a year in their flesh. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's ickier. But <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I recognize the thematic similarity of that I'm just curious if that like, like specifically the 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 skin wearing and um, the idea of like taking it on tour. <laughs> uh, yeah i do like how she points out that while the wearing of the skins of other creatures was like it's eye-opening like kind of spiritual experience for so many of them yeah that it wasn't like that for all of them particularly the dragon in this story who was more like oh cool i get to understand you better so i can take you for all your worth i can manipulate you yeah. Which doesn't get covered yet, but does get hinted at where it's like, not, not, you know, this wasn't kumbaya and we're all brothers for, for everybody, you know? Uh, he's the Miss Rafferty of the group that's just like, yeah, well, a little different for me. <laughs> Except Miss Rafferty's not mean. No, no, but it's definitely like, it's not the spiritual experience for him that it was for the other people. Right. I was one with the antelope, and we ran through the savannah and just felt like one with the universe. And I just felt like this was my family now. Miss <laughs> Rafferty's like, what? So I'm in a stinky skin of a rat whose name was Pete, and I end up living in a hall with 20 other rats. The, the skin landed on top of the library, and I'm just sitting there with my, my gold buckles and my moose knuckle hanging out. But they gave me all their grains, so I guess it was a win-win. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that is very Miss Rafferty. I just, overall, I just love just the ogress just taking everybody in, like, oh, some stray sheep, you can come live with me. Oh, a dog, you can come live with me. And she is just wrapping everybody in her big, like, her big ogress blanket of love. And it's just, it's so, it's so precious. Well, she just sees it as like, I've got the space. I've yeah. got the resources. Why wouldn't I let someone else use this? I can't use all of this myself. Yeah. And it kind of does, it explains why she feels like, or the more you give, the more you get. Because she gives a home to these sheep, and then she has like sheep hanging out. And she gets companionship from this dog. And like she you know, gives to all these animals, and then they're just so devoted to her as a result. That, yeah, she is getting a lot back. Yeah. It made me want sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I do want a sheep. 
I know some people are scared of them because their eyes are weird, but like I grew up have cats and it's a similar kind of eye. So I was just like, nah, it's just the way their eye is. It's fine. Do they have the like rectangle pupil thing like goats do or what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have, they have those kind of eyes. I guess like goats though are scarier to people because that's always like, oh, goat, the goat is Satan, but the lamb isn't. And you're like, but the lamb has those eyes too, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I like goats, so they they are they're our buddies. Yes. Did I tell the story on the podcast of I might have, but oh well, I'll tell it again because it it's kind of come up naturally. But once um, me and my brother were gonna walk to the store and we're like walking through our neighborhood and we hear someone like yelling. It sounded like a child out in their yard just like is yelling and having a fit, and we're just like that kid needs to shut up, like because they're so sick of hearing it, and it just got louder the further we walk down the street and then suddenly this guy walks around the corner and he's got two goats on leashes and it's them going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> we're like, okay, that makes more sense. I couldn't believe no one had yelled at the, at someone to shut up just because of how loud they were yelling. And it was like, Oh, it was goats the whole time. Uh, and then suddenly it wasn't annoying anymore just because I knew it was coming from animal. Right. Like, you're going to get mad at a goat for being a goat? Like, no. Waste, waste of time. Well, it's like watching videos of animals eating and they're going like, you know, like that lip smacking thing where if it's coming from a human, you want to punch them in the face with like all of like full force. But like, it's an animal. So you're just like, oh, yeah, that raccoon's really enjoying their grapes. You know, <laughs> it's not as annoying. Are we ready for the next bit? Yeah. Anthea's in the orphanage's reading room, which is filled with the books Myron managed to rescue from the library. She has developed a theory, and when Bartleby and Cass come to check on her, she shares it. She's realized that every morning that a gift of food appears on the porch is preceded by a night when the crows can be heard outside. Therefore, it stands to reason that the crows are the ones providing them with gifts. It seems strange, but she knows the language of crows and hears them repeat, The more you give, the more you have, which is surely proof in itself. Soon it is market day. Anthea Bartleby, Cass, and Myron set up a stand in the town square to sell their wares, including handmade soaps, jams, and paint. Unfortunately, due to the economic downturn the town has been in, their profits are not what they should be, and the prices for the food they intend to buy have gone up, making things even worse for them. Anthea purchases a meager amount of grains and lentils, and is ready to head home when one of the stall workers starts speaking poorly about the ogress, blaming her for the famine. Bartleby comments on how stupid and ignorant this is, and the town folk's anger turns towards the orphans. A bit of a brawl breaks out when, Cassie, when Cass attacks a man charging Anthea, and in the scuffle, Anthea is sent to the ground, banging up her face and spilling all their food in the dirt, rendering it unusable. Myron tells the villagers how ashamed he is of them, and takes the kids back home. In the days that follow, Elijah tries to be more helpful while Anthea is on the mend. Unfortunately, his tendency to tell stories almost nonstop Stories about the town, the ogress, a dragon, the stone, anything and everything in a winding sort of timeline that may suggest an element of future sight in this world. Uh, this tendency to speak at length annoys pretty much everyone around him. Eventually, while sitting with Anthea, we get some clue as to how he knows all these stories. He can hear the oak wood that was used to build the orphanage, which used to be beautiful trees that the stone and the glen loved. The trees would tell the stone stories, and even now, it whispers them constantly. And Elijah seems to be the only one who can hear them. 
He asks the wood to give him some concrete information that can help with the group's troubles, especially after Anthea gets upset again at the prospect of leaving the orphanage. But the wood can only offer stories. A stomach bug begins to go around, knocking out half the kids. Matron and Myron decide that it's time to ask for help from the mayor, specifically regarding the financial stipend they used to receive every year, but never arrived last time. Matron and Cass go to visit the mayor's palatial home, which is decorated in shining jewels and statues of himself, passing a long line of -of out-of-work villagers begging for any job at all. On the way, Matron recalls the lovely toy store that was once in town, and how, as a young adult, Myron bought her a clockwork butterfly that to this very day flaps each time his heart beats in perfect harmony. Things go sour once they reach the mayor's house, however, as Matron is overcome by the mayor's totally magical charms and manages to be convinced that they don't need any help from him whatsoever. The only time the magic slips is when he thanks the antelope instead of the skies or god or something more familiar, but this isn't enough to put Matron back on track. They return home empty-handed, and that night Cass overhears them discussing the fact that things would be easier with fewer kids, but they can't imagine sending any of them away. But if they did, it would make sense to be Anthea due to her age. Anthea is too good at fixing and making things, however, and Cass does some math and realizes that perhaps the best one to leave would be herself. So, um, these kids don't know how to read a room. Um, (laughs) when they're in the market. Really, I was just like, shut up. You know, when they're like, I mean, the people were saying stupid crap like you know oh this is all the ogress's fault like this happened before she showed up poems like i don't know what you're talking about you know but um people don't like being told they're wrong yeah for some reason it really bothers people especially if you're saying like that's a stupid thing to say and like myron just kind of like you know stop it and like trying to like take them away but they kind of just kept pushing it yeah and adults shouldn't attack children i'm not saying the children brought it on themselves of course not but People know how to behave, but apparently these people don't. Um, Especially when you're not in a place of, like, self-reflection, like, if you're not, like, emotionally mature for that in general, or if you're just, like, stressed out or, you know, already focused on something, you're not going to hear somebody contradict you and then be like, oh, I should think deeply and reflect on my my position on that. Your immediate response is to just double down. And, (laughs) like... That's going to get really bad when everybody's already so on edge all the time. Right, yeah. Like, all the sniping at each other. Like, wasn't there, like, some man on the street going, like, don't touch me! And, like, no one was near him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, what? Like, it's it's funny, but it's not funny. But, yeah, just, what horrible people. I was just, I was just like, why doesn't everybody move? Because everyone here sucks. They couldn't. Uh, the the two old people are too old, I guess, to like go scout like a a new location in another town. They're like, hey, we've got fifteen mouths to feed. Does anyone yeah. want to give us a house? Well, and I'm gonna touch on this later, but um, I'm not sure how much interaction they have with other places anymore because not only do they like they don't have a lot to offer, and they're also so like you know insular at this point that I'm not sure they're getting many people coming or going there there's talk of people like leaving the town years ago um like yeah. when they like kids when they grow up and stuff but it doesn't seem like that happens a whole lot anymore and they there's a mention of like one of the paths through the woods being like overgrown and pretty much impossible to travel so they might have their work right. cut out for them to really like get anywhere else too yeah i was, I was kind of wondering about that i was like why don't 
because they have like they have like these really beautiful soaps. They're very nice. And they have um, goat cheese, which is amazing. And um, the nice jams. And it's like, don't sell to these like suck ass people like go to the next town over and sell but then they need a cart to get them over there and you know that's i bet anthea could have built one <laughs> but um yeah i i guess you're right that there's they're too insular maybe that wouldn't even have occurred to them to do or it would have been like well how do i know when their market day is i'd have to like waste a trip going there to inquire about it and then come back here and mm-hmm and uh, people are probably going to be all suspicious of me doing that and be like, he's selling our town secrets to other towns. You know, it's like, what, the secret that this place sucks? Oh, spoiler alert. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to picture like the neighboring places where they're just like, oh, yeah, I remember Stone in the Glen. Shit, didn't that just all just fall on the ground? No, that was just their park. Like, there's still <laughs> people there trying to make the best of it, I guess. But I don't know. Dude, that'd be so crazy, like, I'm just, now thinking about being, like, a a town that's only, like, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles away, and uh, just assuming that it's, like, a ghost town now or something, not realizing that there's actually plenty of people there, but they've just completely shut themselves in and just decaying from the inside. I mean, haven't you been to places that kind of, or not been to it, been to it, but maybe passed through, like, I was thinking of um, Aberdeen, Washington this entire time, or like a place like Flint, Michigan, where it's just like, how's anyone still there? And you're just like, well, how do they leave? Like, it takes money to leave. Yeah. And and it's like, well, sure, I I live in this town where there's nothing, but I at least own my house. I, I'd have to start completely over if I went somewhere else. Yeah. So I guess that's why they say. So, yeah, I, I was think because you have to pass through Aberdeen in order to get to like the beach communities further south in Washington. So I've been passing through there my whole life. And I actually do have like family who live in that area because it's like lower cost of living. But like, yeah. it's a depressing area. Yeah. In this place in particular, like it's it's I think it always said like um it always felt like the smoke was still hanging around from the fire, even though that would have been like, what, what do you think, between 30 to 50 years ago at that point? Is that what we're looking at? Probably time time wise here. Uh, Yeah, I, think, I mean, I figured the because my Myron would have been an adult, but the kids weren't alive yet. So, yeah, somewhere in that like a few decades ago. Yeah, decades I was thinking the smoke hung around just because it was the dragons hanging around. He's probably like erupt some smoke occasionally. Just like, look, it's just dragon toots, (laughs) dragon toots. I was thinking burpees, but yeah, I guess toots. Any kind of like emission, I guess. Yeah, This town is failing their dragon emissions test for sure. Oh, God. Okay. When they go to the house to like see him and they're in. Like I ended up la I laughed a few times because this is how shitty the dragon is, but are the well we know it's a dragon the mayor how shitty the mayor is because it's like he said he came out with a pitcher of lemonade in one glass <laughs> so he pours himself some glass of lemonade and just drinks it in front of them. What a d hole! I couldn't stop laughing. I was just like that perfectly sums it up. 
because I was just like, oh, that's that's nice to have lemonade, and I'm like, no, singular singular cup. How do you how do you describe someone's personality in one sentence? <laughs> they bring out a pitcher of lemonade in only one glass. It has them like sit out on this on this patio where there's just no cover anywhere. They're just squinting in the light at him, and she's oh, like, yeah, hey, yeah. hey, you know, um, there's supposed to be a public fund for us, and we didn't get it last year, and um, so far we haven't gotten it this year. I try to make do, and I, you know try to reuse the things we already have and we repair things. Nothing gets thrown out. Everything gets used. And he's all like, great. Bye, guys. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> Bye. I wish everyone was like you. You know, everyone in this town is just, if it, they everything would be okay if they paid their taxes or if they did their part. And it looks like you're doing your part. All right. Bye, everybody. And <laughs> shuts the door. And then she just kind of sits there for a bit. like, And then you can see the glamour slowly wear off of her. And then she just gets this, like, okay, all right, that didn't work. <laughs> it doesn't um, seem like this glamour works on the children or Myron, but it works on everybody else. Yeah. I also want to mention, because I don't think it's anywhere in my notes, because it's not terribly important plot-wise, but for anyone that wants to picture any of these scenes. So there's a thing about the dragon's power, like, it replenishes, part of the, part of the way he replenishes power is through like, going out and, like, basking and, right? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so the trees are gone because of the, like, the drought and, and, and famine and stuff like that, but he's hates shade also because he's the... It's almost like being a uh, cold-blooded, you know, the, the sun, like, gives him energy and stuff. So uh, there's, like, no shade anywhere especially around his place so everything is just gleaming bright in the sun and like everybody has to like squint to look at anything and it's just the sun beating down on you all the time and it's just an extra level of misery yeah because uh i hate hot i hate hot so much i'd rather be cold any day so yeah um and squinting in sunlight is like oh you get such a headache from doing it it's, yeah ugh. Yeah, I always end up miserable. like I always end up closing one eye. <laughs> so you're just creepily winking at everyone. Hey, yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just Lucille Bluthing. You're just like <laughs> yeah, the winky eye suggestions for singular lemonade. <laughs> I had a crazy, crazy theory that didn't pan out at all, um, but because of how there's kind of this, there's the the cyclical timeline in, in a way like not like literally but in terms of like there these stories that elijah tells and stuff he tells stories that are happening in the present or haven't happened yet so there's a certain level of things not following in a linear time and she even talks about how time is weird but i had a thought that what if anthea grew up to become the toy maker that made the butterfly for myron because she's so good at like making things and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Or she's descended from because there's some photo of a woman amongst her stuff that might have been the toy maker. Oh yeah, that's possible too. Yeah. So, yeah, I I would like to think that there's some relation to that somehow. Maybe. Uh, we'll have to ask Stone. I don't know. <laughs> Just go outside and like kneel down. We have any good stories? 
get a gear shot. We'll try again later. Thanks. Are you ready to move on? Yeah. Okay. Cass begins preparing to leave, which includes packing away the essentials and giving away all her other possessions to the other kids. Anthea notices the strange behavior and tries to bring it up to Bartleby, but can't quite make it make sense. Um, that night, Cass slips away, and the rest of the orphanage doesn't notice until breakfast the next day. Cass finds an old donkey enclosure to spend the night in, then sneaks through the back alleys of town and out past the ogress's house, where her map says a trail through the forest should be. Unfortunately, years of overgrowth have made it a nightmare to navigate, and she is soon lost in the woods. Sometime in the night, a crow named Harold finds her and snuggles up with her. After some time, Harold returns to the ogress and tells her about Cass. The ogress finds Cass, who has fallen ill from exposure, and brings her back to her farm, uh, which is much warmer and drier. Back in town, everyone realizes Cass is gone, and Matron immediately assumes it was a kidnapping. She goes to the cobbler, an old friend, for help. The cobbler decides to sneak to the mayor, while his wife, a much more level-headed woman than her husband, remarks that there's no proof that a crime has been committed, but nobody listens. The cobbler makes several stops on his way to the mayor's, including the town constable and several shopkeepers, trying to form a search party. Only the seamstress takes him seriously. He finally reaches the mayor, who attempts to soothe the cobbler with his charming voice. The cobbler is swayed but persistent, and the mayor announces he will make a speech in two days as a way to bring the community together. This is, of course, completely useless, but sounds good to the cobbler in the moment. Back at the orphanage, the cobbler's wife comes to help out and notices the sorry state the place is in. She goes around taking notes of things to improve and vows to return shortly with reinforcements. While this is ultimately a kind gesture, the way she looks down at the orphanage rubs some of the kids the wrong way. The constable comes to open up a formal investigation, but nobody listens to Anthea when she mentions Cass was acting strange before her disappearance. Matron sends the kids to bed early so she can talk with the constable, and Anthea wonders if facts are as important as she thought, considering nobody's taking them into account. Elijah tells everyone to stop worrying because he already knows the orphans will save the day. Cass rests up at the ogress's house, and once her fever breaks, the ogress returns her to the orphanage. Unfortunately, her visit into town is witnessed by the butcher, who misreads the situation and assumes she was stealing the child instead. That same night, Bartleby has a strange dream. In it, he visits the old library, paying special attention to the stained glass images all around it, which include images of the events of this very story. There are also several talking cats. He wakes up and, just as one of the images at the library predicted, finds Cass has been safely returned to the orphanage. The cobbler's wife comes by with volunteers who bring food and help with her grand plans of improving everything in the orphanage. She says that a search party has been formed to find Cass, but when Bartleby tries to tell her that Cass is home safe, she doesn't listen. Myron, Anthea, and Bartleby go to the butchers later that day and find him telling an exaggerated story of the ogress's visit to, into town, which riles up the townsfolk. Myron tries to get them to understand the truth of the matter, but they aren't having it. The townsfolk gather in the town square to hear the mayor's speech. At first, he tries to pacify them in the same way he always does, but when he notices this isn't working, he leans into their anger at the ogress. He ever so subtly pushes them into forming an anti-ogre mob, because they need someone to blame for their troubles, and this is much better than blaming him. Back at the orphanage, the kids get word of the crowd and realize they need to warn the ogress before the mob actually decides to do something. Conveniently, this is when Harold and the dog arrive, having desperately missed Cass. They soon also understand that the ogress needs to be warned, so the kids write her a letter and send it back with Harold and Dog. The ogress loves the illustration in the letter, but unfortunately can't read, so she knows nothing of the danger. Harold tries to explain, but neither the ogress nor the other crows believe him.
So I thought like a thing that would be addressed and uh, maybe remarked upon was the the cobbler's wife. Mm -hmm. They just said like, oh, she talks a whole lot and like she can really get like people going and she's recruited all these other people to do good. And that's great. But um, also she just kind of steamrolls over them. And I I was thinking that she there's this, this tendency of like, no, I'm helping. I am the helping person. Um, you don't tell me how to help you because I know how to help you. Mm-hmm. And there's people like that um, where they're centering their charity over how people feel. like think of like all the programs that exist that already help people who are in need. They don't seem to value what it is like it is they want. Like it's, it's very like this, this is what you'll get. And this is, you know, like, well, actually, could there be something to help us pay for diapers? Cause we really, they're like, no, we'll give you milk, but we're not giving you diapers, you know, and diapers mm. are really expensive. So, um, that, that's what that made me think of is this kind of paternalistic attitude toward, uh, the, the needy or people who, you know, need a little, or are going through a rough time and are going to need some sort of assistance, which most of us experience at some point in our lives. You're like, um, of course not everyone, but, um, like I've been in that position myself. Um, shortly after my dad left, my mom took us to this event, um, that was at a local church and I was horribly embarrassed and I felt shitty being there and I was angry that we were there, but there was this event at a church where they would give you soup and then you could find a warm jacket. And my mom was just like, I can't afford a jacket. And Mara grew. I'm going to need to get them jackets. This is where I'm going to do that. And then they're going to give us some soup for dinner. Some of them, my groceries can last an extra day. This will, this will be great. That's what my, how my mom felt about it. But I felt differently because I was, um, you know, 11 and self-conscious. And, uh, I was just like, yeah, I'm the little poor girl here. And, uh, the coats, um, I was just kind of looking at them, just like, these are like not, they weren't cool coats. They were going right. to be obvious that like I got them at a church and, um, which isn't to say that people who donate to these things, like you need to go out and shop for like the best thing, but I don't know, maybe consider that maybe, you know, if you're donating a coat that the zipper's broken, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? Someone needs that coat. And I, yeah, I think that there's, I mean, I've noticed this quite a bit is the idea of like, when people bring stuff to Goodwill, it's in their head, they're like, you know, I don't want to throw it away in a landfill, maybe someone can use it. But like, the people that are using things that are being donated, there's, they still have a level of standard, maybe it's not like, you know, maybe they're not as picky about aesthetic standards, but like, there needs to still be a, a level of functionality and like hygiene involved in the things that they're yeah. getting and so like just donating trash to goodwill all that does is make it harder for goodwill to actually sift through and provide quality items to people who need them at a reduced cost right Did, your school probably had food drives right mm-hmm. like canned food yeah. drives i remember one year like some girls who were helping run it we're really upset and like yelling at all of us. Just like, just so you guys know, at the last canned food drive, hardly anyone gave anything. And the stuff they gave 
was already expired stuff. And these were like 14 year old girls who were kind of learning the truth of how the world is. And they looked like they were going to cry and they were so angry of like, that's what was being provided. If anything. Yeah. Which isn't quite what the cobbler's wife was doing. But again, it's just that like, I know best or I'm not going to listen to what, what, um, you're trying to tell me because I already know what I need to do. Right. Like this goes way broader than just like charity stuff, but just in general, like if you're going to help somebody, ask them what sort of help is best for them to receive. Like, don't just assume that you, you know, don't assume that you understand what everybody's dealing with. Yeah. It, you know, if like, you're going like to step that, in, just let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's good that but the, the cobbler's wife is, is like, she gets stuff done at least. Like she comes in and she could maybe not be so abrasive about it, but she's getting people in to like repair the house. And she's like, I'm talking to this pe- these people to see if we can get like some more clothes for these guys because everybody's growing and they're going to need something that'll fit. And um, that's great. And I, I just kind of feel like the matron and Myra need to be a bit more assertive because mm-hmm. then maybe... You know, that whole part where the kid's yelling, she's back. (laughs) You know, like, we're fine. Right. (laughs) And she leaves and it says, I don't think she heard you, said Matron. Like, I laughed at that. (laughs) It was because they kept saying, like, oh, that's really wonderful. But I'm like, just you just need to say the thing. Quit, like, putting stuff in front of it that would make it easy for her to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're thanking me, but there's no need to thank me. You know, this kind of feeling, which is probably what she thought she was doing when she's like kind of. Because she's busy. She's got a lot of other stuff going on. And who knows what else this old broad's going to say to me before I can get, like, the carpenter in here. And I still need to talk to, like, the seamstress about, like, clothes for these kids. And, you know, so people who don't just say the thing and just kind of keep. I was frustrated all through that scene. I was like, well, you just say it. <laughs> why, why aren't you just blurting it out? Grab this lady's arm, stop her in place, and like tell her what you need to tell her. Um. So when they're trying to, when they are trying to explain that, like you know, the situation is not what it looks like. That you know, the ogress did not steal Cass because Cass is here. Um, the butcher was wrong. Uh, I really liked uh the constable. Uh, she says, "Well, that can't possibly be right." The butcher saw the ogress plain as day. I've got it right here in my notes, and I signed it and everything, and that makes it official, so it must be true. That's the law. And I wrote, this is some lemony snicket nonsense. <laughs> for real. <laughs> oh, and let's discuss the butcher for a second. So he looks out the window and sees the the ogress walking along, delicately cradling a child in their arms. The child is safe and like looks happy and comfortable and the woman has a cart load of of treats and food and stuff everything about this screams abduction i was like how many context clues is he deliberately ignoring plus like the kid's been missing for like a, a day a couple days at this point and like it's like why why is she here again she already took the kid you think she'd be like you know next town over or something with with her like ill-gotten gains or whatever instead of like no i'm gonna take this kid this kid i abducted some crater back and forth down the street for funzos like it doesn't make any sense all i'm gonna say is that if he was in the real world he would use the word uh grooming a lot more frequently than oh my god 
for real. I just remembered. I saw a manga this morning and I decided that it was the title of the manga was going to be my drag name. (laughs) What is it? So this is the full name of the manga and the full name would also be my drag name. Cross-dressing villainous Cecilia Sylvie. (laughs) It's very good. good (laughs) That is very good. You can't refer to me as anything shorter. Right. Oh, I I laughed another time in this book. Um, Like, it wasn't funny for a while where the cobbler's like, a kid was abducted. They're all like, I don't know what you want me to do with this information. He's like, maybe care. And they're like, I don't, I don't. But, um. When he gets to the mayor's house, the mayor's like, hello, thank you for stopping by and shut the door. <laughs> oh, God, just died laughing. I was just like, "I, he sucks, but I also like him just for that. <laughs> that and drinking the lemonade. Oh, my God, that was so funny. <laughs> and the way they're like, that looks really refreshing. And he's like, it is. He keeps drinking. <laughs> ready? Yeah, ready. Back in town, Cass tells the story of her time in the woods. Matron blames it on the fever and refuses to hear the truth, something that most people in this story are guilty of at one point or another. The kids are frustrated by this, but what can they do? The next market day arrives, and in the afternoon, Anthea notices Myron getting tired. She goes to the junk heap near the stone to find some pieces to build Myron a chair. She rests against the stone, and her mind is filled with images remarkably like the stories Elijah tells, about the ogress and a dragon and a village swindled out of everything. When she gets off the stone, the images fade from her memory. She finishes making Myron's chair and returns to him just before the mayor arrives. He begins another one of his speeches, and Anthea goes up to convince him of the truth. The Cass has returned safely, and the ogress has done nothing wrong. The mayor dismisses her, and she returns home, while the villagers prepare to put their anger into action. That night, the mob arrives at the ogress's house. She welcomes them warmly, since she has no idea that she should fear them. They begin berating and threatening her, and one of them throws a rock at her. This is the last straw for the crows, who attack in a flurry and drive off the crowd. The ogress is saddened by what's happened, but believes that the only solution is to give the town more kindness, so she prepares another cart filled with delicious goodies and heads into town. The next morning, everyone finds their treats and forgets to hide them, so everyone sees that they aren't alone in receiving gifts in the night. Of course, none of them know who is actually providing them, but the cobbler's wife announces that the kindness matters more than the reason or person behind it. She then enlists everyone she can into helping out the orphanage. At the orphanage, the kids hear tales of the mob's failed attack on the ogress, which they've embellished a bit. The kids again try to defend the ogress, but this time it's Myron who dismisses them. This shocks Anthea, and he responds by telling her that he's finally realized that the town can't be saved, and the best thing to do is for them to keep their heads down and their doors shut. This is the last straw for Anthea, and she decides that the orphans must go warn the ogress in person. That night, the mob gathers again, and they storm the ogress's house. The crows fight most of them off again, but not before they've broken the ogress's windows, tore up her garden, and the butcher sets fire to the animal pen. This all breaks the ogress's heart, but once the butcher realizes the pen is full of sheep, he has a change of heart and goes in to rescue them with the ogress. After rescuing them all, he explains that he grew up with sheep and refuses to serve them in his shop. Maybe the ogress isn't so bad after all if she takes such good care of those sheep. The two of them sit together with the sheep and watch the barn burn to the ground. The kids try to sneak out the night of the fire, but Matron and Myron thought ahead and slept in front of the door with the keys clutched in their hands. 
As the days go on, the village realizes the gifts have stopped entirely, because ever since the attack, the ogress has been holed up in her house, inconsolable. The only one benefiting from all this is the mayor, but even he's upset that he's not getting his daily pie. It looks like it's finally time for the orphans to save the day. Yeah, that that was a really rough scene to read when they just show up and just wreck her shit. Yeah. I was I was just like, why are you smashing up the vegetables? Like, steal them. Like, this is a town that doesn't have a whole lot of resources anymore, right? What what money are you making that you can stomp squash without, like, taking it away or using it? It's- I mean, yeah, it's the same sort of logic as buying shoes to burn them. It's like, I'm not quite sure what you thought you were doing, but the end result is that you're just out some money. Right. And it's the like people they- who made the shoes still got right yeah <laughs> no he knew she, he he knew sheep were in there he only decided to help when he, there were lambs he didn't know there were lambs which is like why wouldn't you think that what <laughs> stupid asshole and that's why he doesn't serve lamb in his uh store there's no oh, lamb I'm chops sorry. yeah um he cared cared about um the babies but not the grown animals apparently the grown animals dying in fire was fine but so that's why I was still like, I I still hate him. Yeah. Why is he still here? <laughs> Go away, you jerk. Hey, I got a question for you. When does this book take place? Like, I I I don't remember if there are any references to the fan- real It's world, a fantasy so it realm, well so it doesn't yeah. matter. I just I, they mentioned people on bicycles, and I, all of a sudden my image of the village got a bit more modernized. Like not like you know crazy modern, but I was like, oh okay, so it's like. If we go, if we were to use like Earth time, it would be like early 1800s, and I was just picturing more like a bit more broadly medieval. Oh, nah, not me. I was picturing like 1910s. People okay. had bikes then. Oh, this section had my probably my favorite quote in the whole book. They're at um, market day, and the butcher came by, and he's you know being butchery as usual. And Bartleby is trying to be all philosophical about him, being like, you know, I wonder what, like, uh, our favorite philosopher says that anger is just fear in disguise. I wonder what that man is actually afraid of. But then Cassie cleared her throat. She glared. And then very quietly, she said, I would like to kick that man. Yeah. <laughs> you you, need you to get, get it, Cass. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's another instance of no one listening when... um. I forget which market day it was, but like the mayor was going to speak and Myron was like, yeah, let's just pack up now because anytime he talks, everyone becomes paranoid and starts like tightening their purse strings. So we're not going to make any more money. And they're like, oh, and then they didn't make any money. And it's like, it's almost like he knew and he's older than you and like, has more experience with this. I was just, uh, I don't know, just annoyed by everyone who didn't listen to anyone else. Yeah. The part where Myron is, like, telling them to stop when usually he's a bit more, you know, optimistic and on their side. Uh, I made a note, and I was like, he seems like he's acting kind of out of character. And then I turned to the page, and he immediately explained why, and I was like, oh, okay. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Guess I should have watched the whole video before going to the comments. Oh my god, so many people do that. Is it just they're so eager to have their opinion out immediately or something? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I rarely, I don't. like, 
I think I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've commented on a YouTube video that wasn't commenting in order to possibly win something. Like, I just, I don't need to, I don't really have a lot to say. You've made your video, I either enjoyed it or didn't, and if I didn't, I probably was not the audience that you were trying to curate anyway, and that is okay. I just, I just never comment on <laughs> YouTube videos. Are you ready for the orphans to save the day? Let's get them to save the day. Well, they don't, they don't quite save the day. Yeah, we have two more sections. Oh, okay. 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 So, turns out Hiram has been ready for this for some time. After getting their chores done and saying goodnight to Matron and Myron, the orphans gather and Hiram shows uh, shows them the rope he fashioned a while back when he planned to go search for Cass alone. The older kids strap the younger kids to harnesses, and they all head out the window. Then, I put tildes so I remember to sing it. Over the wall and through the alleys to the ogress's house we go. It doesn't fit the syllable scheme, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> you tried. I, I figure if you're doing it to yourself, I should do it to myself periodically, so we're, you know, equally as embarrassed by this whole thing. <laughs> uh, they pass the mayor's house on the way and see the piles of gold he's accumulated, all the while telling the orphanage that there's not enough money to help them. They follow the sound of crows out to the ogress's house, and the rest of the crows are astonished to hear how well Anthea speaks their language. They are quickly won over by how kind and respectful these kids are, and take them inside to see the ogress. The orphans quickly introduce themselves and get to work cleaning and repairing what they can. They also introduce the ogress to a new experience. A hug. As they work, Anthea gets an idea. The group starts producing numerous small books, each one containing uh, one of Elijah's stories about kind orphans, greedy leaders, and generous crows. Time moves differently at the ogress's house, and they're able to crank out dozens of these books each night and still manage to sneak back to the orphanage before morning. They do this for several nights and have the crows deliver the books to the villagers each time. As the villagers find the books, something incredible happens. They read and they start to understand. Their hearts begin to open up and they feel things other than anger and fear. They begin discussing the stories with each other, swapping books and reading together. Soon, the town begins to look like a community again. The only person not thrilled by this change? The mayor. Probably can't read anyways since it's becoming incredibly obvious by now that he's just a Trump stand-in. On the way home one night, Anthea makes a detour with the kids, some of her memories of touching the Stone of Return, and she hopes if the other kids touch the stone, they'll see what she saw, and maybe together they can convince the grown-ups to help fix things for good. Uh, they do, and the image they see of a greedy, destructive dragon in a man's skin puts everything into focus. They rush home to tell Matron and Myron. The adults follow the kids back to the ogress's house and finally get the full picture of what's been going on. They agree to help the kids and let them continue making the books, but in a more structured way that doesn't involve sneaking out in the middle of the night. Together, not only are more books made, but the ogress's garden is replanted and some bits of her home are mended and improved. Uh, things are improving in town, too. People are becoming increasingly friendly and spending more time talking and hanging out instead of holing up in their homes. Myron has even opened up the orphanage's reading room to become a library of sorts. Ideas are flowing fast and freely now, but Bartleby and Anthea think there's still one more hurdle to cross. Yeah, that that mayor and his beautiful signs. I put Meg, I made several signs are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that orphan who like we as the readers like didn't give any two thoughts about, but he's just all like, 
yeah, here we go. I've got a ladder. I've got a rope. I've got, I'm right. good to go. <laughs> Been waiting for this moment my whole life. And they're like, wow, seriously? <laughs> that, that I don't know. I got a kick out of that. I mean, there's other things to discuss, but I think it'd probably be more like the last section of the book to talk about it. But. Okay. We can do that. All right. The mayor, of course, is having an absolute fit at what his town has become. He can feel himself losing power and sets up one of his usual speeches to address the town and refocus them towards their hatred of the ogress. However, many of the townsfolk don't pay attention to him, and those that do would like to instead come up with solutions to some of the longstanding issues in town. The lack of a school, the sinkhole, the busted up roads. There's even an accountant who wonders just where all their tax money has been going. The mayor glances around for the signs he put up in the past and instead finds a massive one asking, what is a neighbor? It begins to rain and the dragon, sorry, mayor, rushes back to his cave home to come up with a plan to win back the town or burn it to the ground. The next day, everyone receives a new book and they all receive the same one. It is called Neighbors. Inside, it's filled with statements of what a neighbor is. Everyone around you, whether you know them well or not at all, agree with them or don't, have more than them or less. And as neighbors, you have a duty to care for each other and practice kindness. The illustrations show images of the townsfolk, of long-lost friendships rekindled, and of the ogress. She's a neighbor, too. That day, the picnic is hosted in the town square. The ogress is there, shaded from the sun, and she has brought tons of food. But so have other folks. And those that couldn't bring food brought chairs and umbrellas and everything needed to make the event a success. And once everyone has settled in, met and or apologized to the ogress and gotten some food, Elijah begins a story. A story about a town and a dragon and an ogress. And finally, people get it. The mayor can feel something isn't right. He steps outside and finds almost none of the cats that usually surround his home eyeing him from afar. It's quiet. He heads into town ready to put up some new signs that will surely fix everything, and instead finds the picnic, with the ogress at the center of it. She offers him some food, and he angrily declines. He tells the townsfolk he is putting up more signs about the ogress, but they have no interest in his campaign anymore. Just then, the sky darkens with the approaching of hundreds of crows, each carrying with them coins taken from the mayor's hoard. They rain the coins down on the picnic, showering everyone with the wealth so long denied them, Wealth that can solve the issues the town has been facing for so long. The mayor howls in anger and tries to summon up his magic, but he is weakened from spending so long in human form. The town's cats, knowing this, begin to scratch at him, cutting open his skin and revealing the tiny shriveled dragon inside. With nothing left to threaten anyone with, he scampers off into the woods, chased by the cats, never to be seen again. Months later, it's wintertime, and the ogress brings her usual assortment of treats to town. Many things have changed, like the instatement of a new mayor, Esme, the cobbler's wife. The ogre stops by the stone, who has been telling this tale all along, and has a brief visit with an old friend. She then continues on to the orphanage, where Myron is waiting, his clockwork butterfly in hand, still flapping its wings, but weakly and sporadically. He has little time left, but the moments he has will be filled with the people he loves. The ogre sits with him for a spell, and they enjoy each other's company. Then she and the children go outside to sit and watch the stars. Yay! Yay! I know what every time you and I read a book, we always find the designated Mara or the designated Josh of the story. And yeah. I, was, I couldn't, I was just like, no, nah, I'm not, not seeing who I am yet until we get to the part with the crows delivering those neighbor books. And they're mm -hmm. like, you don't deserve this, but here it is, I guess. And I was like, that's me. I don't like any <laughs> of these people. So. 
I found my character. I'm the crows. Not even Harold. I'm just one of like the yeah, one of the saucy crows being all like, <laughs> you put on airs too much, so I'm not even gonna listen to your bullshit. And he's like, no, it's not bullshit, you guys. The kids can speak crow. That that do you hear yourself? Kids speaking crow? Are you out of your mind? Anyway, that was the the dumb comment. I'm sure you're probably gonna say something <laughs> smarter. So go ahead. I don't know about smarter. Okay, so the crows bring all of the coins and, like, shower everybody with coins. And so, like, the wealth has been redistributed. And They make it rain. Obviously, that's important as far as, like, putting the dragon into a blind fury so that the cats can chase them off. Like, I get that. However, having money does not solve any of their problems because I don't know if that's, like... It seems like because of how they are kind of rebuilding their community and how the community kind of existed before, especially if they're not interacting with other towns, it seems like they would be more operating on like a barter system of like, I have this thing, here's what I can offer you, here's the service I can provide. And I'm not sure that money suddenly fixes all of those things. Well, the thing is, that's all their tax money that was used for nothing. So now things actually can be done. So I think that was the point. Um, someone in the Goodreads comments made snide comment about this all being um, socialism. Um, and I was like, that's their fucking tax money. That wasn't just like redistributing his wealth. I mean, that was wealth he stole that yeah. should have been going through the town the whole time. That should have been money that would have gone to rebuilding the library, to rebuilding the school, to, I don't know, doing something yeah. to help with that sinkhole. <laughs> Right. But, no, uh, I, I, no, so I, well I get that. I guess, I guess my thought was like, it's because of how the ogress kind of operates and the philosophy that she is starting to impart on people, the influence of if I have an excess thing, I give the excess thing. And if that were to like rub off on people, then money wouldn't be necessary because they would just be like, here's a service I can provide and someone else will provide service for me and it will all even out. Okay. It, the book is not that left. It's not that lefty. <laughs> There's still like the ogress is though. Proud she she definitely is. She is yes. <laughs> but um, this town no. They're I'm surprised they haven't. I wonder if like the <laughs> cobbler's wife mayor or further on down the road, like whatever mayor they have later is going to be like, you know that uh, ogress never pays property taxes, you know, and gets on her for that. Because <laughs> they do say like, um, was this a perfect time? No, like there's never a perfect time. There's always pros and cons for whatever. Because I think that when they said like this town is a lovely town, it's like was it perfect? No, it wasn't. Yeah. Because if if it was perfect, there's no way that mayor could have gotten a foothold. You know. Anyway. But yeah, that's the book. There were there were a couple of things that we didn't even really touch on a whole lot. Like she had some more stuff to say about time operating in like four ways or something like that. That I was just kind of like, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> there was a there was a line that reminded me of us uh that the dragon dragon mayor had when he's like walking along and he saw like he's like I saw he saw poetry written on the sidewalk. He hated poetry. <laughs> I'm like, hey, poetry doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> I'm not a dragon in a suit. Okay, anyway. So yeah, that was the ogress and the orphans. I would go four stars. Yeah, I think that sounds fair. Okay. Yeah, so that was the Ogres and the Orphans, and um, 
We're going to take a little break next month. We're going to go on spring break. We're going to go party hard. Um, we are big fans of the beach and cocaine. Um, so we're going to go get wasted. That sounded so believable. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but we are, we are going to take, uh, we're going to take a month off in April. I know this might come as a surprise, but we are actually, we're adults, really. We're not actually 12. Um, we are adults <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> sometimes things pile up and it can be, uh, a lot to also do a, podcast that generates us no income and uh takes a combined probably i don't know probably 15 to 20 hours between each of us reading and taking notes and recording and editing yeah yeah it's a a not insubstantial amount of extra work so we'll take april off we'll have something in may um we're juggling a couple ideas it may be a book it may be uh some sort of like top 10 style thing related to other stuff that we've talked about in the past episodes or something um, but we do for sure have a book planned for June, so at the very least we'll have standard book content by then, if not earlier. But yeah, so we'll talk to you guys in May. Hello, fellow kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. You may be able to visit him at benash.com if he still has been paying for that domain. You can contact us on Instagram and technically Twitter for however long that's going to still be around. Uh, at HFK Podcast. And you can contact us uh, directly through email, hfkpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to be honest, that's the only one I check regularly. Um, thanks everyone for listening. And we will, uh, we'll see you guys in May with something. With something. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye bye.